Okay, okay, here we go. Another episode of The Techie and the Cowboy. My name is Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And this is T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. All right, it's time to get into some topics. And today we're going to be talking about the fear of failure or failing forward or all the different things that we want to call whenever it is that we're scared to be able to take risks because of that fear of doing something wrong. T.W., how you feel about this topic, man? Well, it's been uh, something that I have had to grapple with all my life. At this stage in my life, I've pretty well come to the conclusion that uh, as long as my wife loves me and that I have, uh, I'm righteous with God, nothing really else matters. So there was a time I can tell you, you know how some people can say this is exactly the moment that I accepted Jesus. Well, I can tell you exactly the moment I began at least overcome my fear of looking like a jerk in front of people. It was when I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school. My father insisted, he demanded that he didn't care anything else I did, but I had to be on the debate team. And so people have fear of public speaking. And I was that way. I was going, ah, 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 ah. and so you have regular roles and doing that. And one day I was so scared standing at that podium that I pulled my glasses off. And just, I don't know what I was going to do. But when I did, being as blind as I am, as nearsighted, the whole room was a blur. I thought, well, that's not so bad. So I talked to the, to the blurs in the room. That's brilliant. That's actually a brilliant technique for anybody that wears glasses. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I did that. And then I would, you know, over every time I got up to speak after that, I'd always take my glasses off. And then very slowly, I, I would spend more and more time with my glasses on. What was interesting and what reinforced that is that there was a judge somewhere in that process that said that was such a dramatic gesture when you whipped off your glasses to get serious and you got serious after that. And I thought, no, I was about to wet my pants, but... <laughs> Yeah. It's like I was just trying to calm myself down. You just didn't know. <laughs> and so it, it planted the thought in me that I know how I felt, but that person didn't know how I felt and they thought I was a different thing. So it's kind of like, it really doesn't matter. You know, they're going to think what they're going to think, no matter what it is that's going through your mind. So it's kind of, I always think about that thing. And, and now, of course, I'm, I'm willing to talk to anybody in front of people, not necessarily as accomplished as you are, but I don't have any fear of getting up and speaking in front of people. You know, one of my favorite speakers is Les Brown. He talks about how it is that he came from being in elementary school. He was deemed as uh, mentally retarded, as he was deemed as slow and put in the slow class. Uh, but his teacher tricked him into thinking that he was gifted versus, you know, that he was actually slow. So he performed in that space. But he remembers finding out and then getting to the point where he's speaking. And then all of a sudden he has he's going to speak to some big corporation with all these different degrees and everything else. And those tapes start to run in his head about how it is that he doesn't even have a college degree, how it is that he was deemed mentally retarded whenever he was young. And these tapes start to play and he realizes that they don't know any of that. And even if they do, it doesn't matter because if he comes with the authority in his speaking, it doesn't really matter what your background is. Do you have something to bring a value? And I think that makes a big difference uh, whenever it is that you're presenting, right? Do you, are you confident about what it is that you're talking about? Do you feel passionate about what it is that you believe? And that's what's important. True. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, we have several examples in the Bible where they tell us basically to, to get over yourself. Uh, if you have God behind you, there is no reason to fear. 
So once you accept that, that's a, that's a big step in, in accepting it. You can go on. I know that both you and I have had probably formal training in negotiation and negotiation techniques and along with the marketing and stuff. One of the things that rolls over in my mind when you and I think about this is that adage that we were taught that to go ahead and ask, ask for the sale, ask for whatever, because if you don't ask, the answer will remain no. Now, the answer might be no after you ask, but you have clarified it. And who knows, maybe you uh, would have gotten the sale. And if you've done your work right, you will get the sale. But unless you ask, the answer is no. And that kind of goes along with what it is that we want to talk about today before we go ahead and jump into this. So you have several different types of fear, fear of failure uh, is kind of the overall umbrella, but then you have fear of success, fear of money, fear of what other people think and fear of disappointment. So those are some of the things that we're going to hit today. But before we do that, let's kick that tech in the cowboy intro. And now a few minutes with two of my friends who will soon be yours, the techie and the cowboy. Okay, so again, we're talking about fear of failure today. We're talking about, you know, how it is that you could be scared of making decisions, doing things in life, being with the right person, uh, you know, taking risks inside of your career, inside of your business. And a lot of this stems around the fear of failure. But there's the opposite side of fear of failure, which I didn't even know until I started doing research on this subject many, many years back because I was stuck in different places. And I found that I was self-sabotaging myself whenever I got just to the brink of success. And there's a fear of success as well. In other words, especially if it is that you have a business partner, a best friend, or somebody who's doing business with you, there's a fear of success that you might leave them behind or fear of being success and leaving all of what you know behind the comfort zone. Because sometimes with success comes change, right? So you have fear of failure, but on the opposite side of that is fear of success, which can keep you doing just enough not to succeed. In other words, you're not doing enough to be able to fail, but you're not doing enough to be able to succeed. And right whenever you get to that success point, you end up sabotaging yourself. Okay, I was going to ask if you would give us some examples of self-sabotage. So like, let's say it is that you get to, I'll give you a prime example. So I go to a health fair booth and I collect all these leads and everything is super popping. And, you know, you got all these people who it is that are ready to be able to get healthy. So you got this stack of leads. But somehow I just can't find it in my schedule to be able to call these people back, right? You know, just all of a sudden the leads go cold after about 24 hours, 48 hours at the most. But everything in my day just takes seems to take precedent over calling these people back. So you got a couple of things there. Uh, you know, the fear of the no, which is the subconscious thing as well. So when you call these people up, they don't remember you or whatever else that's going on there. And then you also have the sabotage. You know that there's X amount of business inside of this pile. But at the same time, there's something that's holding you back and resisting you from doing what it is that you need to be able to do. Does that make sense? Uh, in your case, you've talked about the marketing. You know you need to be able to do the marketing for your Dusty and the Cowboy book and everything it is there. But it just seems hard for you to be able to put that on the priority of your list. These are all forms of self-sabotage that we do that we don't even recognize as self-sabotage. We know it's priority. We know we need to be able to do it. You know, people know that they need to be able to go to the gym. People know that they need to be able to eat healthy, but at the end of the day, they end up not doing it or they get just far enough in their goals and then they all of a sudden find some, some reason to be able to blow it out the water. These are all forms of, of self-sabotage. There's another element to it that it took me a while to figure out. And that was 
you can't at the same time just coast. You have to work at it and you have to pay attention to, you know, to things like, because you're getting cues and if you don't, you know, if, if it just zoop, goes past you, we're supposed to say, you know what? That was something I should have paid attention to and I need to do this kind of follow-up or, or, or whatever. Uh, as, as an example, again, from my past, there I was in my cap and gown. I was graduating from college. We were lined up alphabetically. And this girl who uh, was standing in front of me was named Laurel Lancaster. And she was, she was a very nice person. She was attractive. She was sweet. She was very popular. And so all these guys were dating her. And as we're you know, sort of walking toward where we're supposed to, to stand, she turned to me and said, how come you never asked me out? <laughs> I was stunned. I never knew that a girl, I thought she was out of my league, you know, that she, but she was interested. She must've been giving off cues. And for so in four years, I never picked up on it. So it's, it's one of those things you look back and say, wow, how did I miss that? <laughs> and we have these cues all the time, but sometimes it is that, again, you thought that she was out of your league. So if she was sending off the cues, you would have just thought of them as something else. You wouldn't even thought that they were her trying to flirt with you or give you hints or because it is that you already have this perception of where it is that you stand and where it is that you need to be. And the same thing happens in life. Uh, and that's where that wasn't even so much self-sabotage. It's just we're not looking for what it is that the opportunities that are presented to us. So they've kind of fall on deaf ears you know when it comes to self-sabotage it's just it's so crazy how it is that it works you can look at different points in your life and you're like man how come stuff always happens to me right when stuff starts going good but if you look back it's a, a combination of decisions that you made that put you into this place where it is that it seems like stuff always quote unquote happens to you well nothing happens to you if you don't allow it to or if you don't set it up for stuff to be able to happen to you so you say, I always get to this point and this happens, or I always get to this point and then this happens. That's where you need to start looking for those cues like you're talking about of where that self-sabotage and break that pattern that's happening. Right. The other thing is that my experience is that there are three types of people, particularly in, in any kind of group setting. The first is the lowest level is those people who can find fault with anything. Oh, this is wrong. That's wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like they were being paid to find uh, fault with anything or, or, or anybody. Next level up uh, is those people who say, you know, that's wrong. But I think if we do X, Y, or Z, we can address that. Now, that may or may not work, but at least they're thinking towards solution. And they might even begin to try to apply some of those things, but they only get so far. And then the top group, the one who in organizations get the top positions and get paid the most money, are what I would call the closers. They understand the root cause of what is a significant problem. They have a solution for it, and they won't stop until they have applied that solution, making the change. I think the mindset is a choice, you know, so when you look at it, are you the one in the group that's always looking for the problems and the issues without coming up with solutions? I love it. I used to have a boss who said that if if you come into me with a problem, you have to have at least three solutions before it is that you could present it to me. Uh, and he, he applied this mentality to the whole organization. And he found that when he applied this, 
less people came into him because they've already thought of the three solutions. So they don't need to come to him in the first place. So it was a brilliant thing on his part, you know, so it made people think before they just came in and dumped whatever problem on his desk and then said, you fix it. Now you're coming in with three solutions. And even if it is that you can't figure out which one's the best, at least we have a starting point. You're not just dumping a whole bunch of stuff on me. And, and it was a brilliant management style because it also empowered the person to know that they were part of the solution just like it is that they were potentially part of the problem, even if they think that they weren't, right? Uh, yeah. So I think that solution mindset is, is a great way to live, but I think it takes some practice. I mean, it took a while for the employees and the managers that were underneath them to get this whole concept of being solution-oriented versus problem-oriented, because in this particular organization, there was lots of problems to be had, right? So, uh, yeah. but as they started to solve themselves as people started thinking more solution-based and it just made it took a lot of work off of his. It changed the environment. And took a lot of work off of his his plate too. Right. You know how you and I have the discussion about uh, the personality types. You talk about colors, pearl, and and that kind of stuff. Correct. And, I, and in your in the color system, I don't know which is which, but I know that there are people, uh, and they were actually the people that I wanted in my accounting departments. People that just do not want change. They don't want anything different tomorrow than it is today. And so their view of success is keeping things the way that they are now. And we know in this world that can't stay that way just because of technology and different things, stuff has to change. What color would that be in, in your scheme? I see that's, I don't think that's, that falls in any of the different personality types. I think that's a, so your brain does not like change because change is, equals danger right? So your brain wants to keep you in a safe place and safe a lot of time is equivalent to things staying exactly the same. So anytime that you go to an extreme, when it comes to change, your brain is going to try and get you back to that safe place. So it's going to easily give you all the excuses on why it is that you don't need to change. And that's where that fear comes from. Does that make sense? It goes back to the fight or flight methodology. So let's say it is that you are safe in your cave and you're warm and everything else like that. And you're like, I need to go out and hunt for some bears. So your brain hears bears and hunt and this thing is danger or whatever else. And you're like, but it's so warm and cozy here in the cave and we got enough food and you start finding all of these excuses on why you don't need to go out and put yourself in that danger with that bear and hunt the bear or whatever else, you know? You, you know what, you know what just, you just made me think of? What's that? There's, there's a phenomenon that's called the bison's dilemma, like bison buffalo kind of thing. Okay. And up in up in Yellowstone, you know, it, uh, they're in Wyoming at the edge of Montana. So it gets real cold there in the wintertime. And, of course, they've got those geysers, Old Faithful, and the pools that are bubbling water and that kind of stuff. So they're hot all the time. And so if you ever go there and you, you walk along the little wooden pathways and you see the geysers, you can look down and you can see hoof prints next to some of those geysers hmm. where, where the stuff was soft. And the park rangers will tell you that, Every spring, they have to haul off three or four dead bison that are there by the pools. And this is the dilemma. It's very, very cold there, but it's warm next to the geysers. Hmm. So they'll, they'll huddle next to the geysers, but that stuff is so, has so much sulfur and other strong chemicals in it. Nothing, no vegetation grows there. There's nothing to eat, you know, for 100 yards close to that. So the, the dilemma is I can stay here and stay warm or I can risk getting cold and frostbite in chest deep snow, but forage for the greenery underneath. So I can stay safe and warm or I can feed myself out in the world. And so some, some make the decision, I'd rather be warm, boom, they die. <laughs>
Yeah. So the fear of death, you know, going out there and, and having the chance of not being able to find grass or whatever else. It's just, again, it's your brain uh, tried to be able to keep you comfortable and keep you in this safe place. So let's take it back to like a, a everyday situation. So you have a promotion that you're up for and you have to go apply for it and you have to interview for it and it's a big pay raise, but with it comes big responsibility. And with it comes your ability to possibly leave the people that you've been working with for a long time, maybe even become their superiors now. And so they may look at you differently and you're not part of the clique that you are complaining about management because now you are a part of management. So now you have this fear of success because your fear of moving up because there's a change that's going to be able to happen that may make you a little bit uncomfortable. So what your brain will do is your brain now trying to keep you safe, trying to keep you in that place where it's comfortable, will give you all the reasons on why it is that you're not qualified, why it is that you might not make it, what happens if it is that I apply and now the management looks at me differently because I didn't, what are my friends going to be able to think once it is I apply and I don't make that job, almost to the point where it is that you end up either not applying for the job at all or applying for the job and then sabotaging yourself inside the interviews by saying stuff. You're like, Oh, how, why'd that slip out? Well, again, self-sabotage kicking in because of that fear of success and also the fear of change that's going on there too. So you see, it's, it's just really about recognizing the different patterns that happen inside of your life. And then what am I going to do to be able to make sure it is that uh, I neutralize this, this fear? Well, there's also uh, just a, a fact of life kind of thing. I was introduced into it when I was uh, in ROTC. Have you ever uh, seen a cannon being fired? Yes. Uh, in the field? Not in the field, no. <laughs> I, saw, I saw one that they used to fire a cannon right there at our uh, college games. It was a real old school that they had restored cannon. <laughs> yeah. But they, they weren't trying to knock anything down. No, they weren't trying to knock anything <laughs> down. They were firing blanks. <laughs> okay. Well, think about this. With, with artillery, like in the Army, when they're firing that stuff off, the guys who are pulling the cord to fire that thing, they can't see what they're aiming at. It's on the other side of the hill, the other side of the trees, whatever. But there's a group of people on the other side with these binoculars and have these little gradations in it that are, are, are scouting for them. So the first shot, they try to get real close, but it's too close, too far to the left. So they give them some corrections. The next shot can be long and to the right third shot should be right on there because they've had those two errors and now they yeah. can calibrate. That's called convergence. And so uh, an iterative process, look at the way that uh, HP or any of the calculators solve for a problem. What they do is they make a best guess in their formula. Then they go the other way until the error is, you know, margin 50. of error. Yeah. What, what they're doing is error, 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 but this error is smaller each time, but they keep on moving forward even though they're making little errors as they go, that's convergence. And so if you adapt something similar to that as your uh, philosophy that anything is possible, uh, look at Edison. He didn't make the light bulb the first time. He said he found a thousand different ways not to make it, but he kept going. And so that's perseverance and success are firmly tied together. So one of my favorite uh, authors slash speakers slash, you know, he's, he's a little bit of everything is John Maxwell. And he actually has a, a theory in a book called Failing Forward. Uh, and that's what it talks about. It talks about not having that fear of success as long as it is that you learn each time it is that you fail, 
then you'll always constantly be growing and moving forward. And the next time you approach the situation differently, because now you have the knowledge of what it is that you did wrong, kind of like your analogy that you said with the cannon. You know, now each time it is that you do it, you're coming in with the experiences of the time before. So you're a different person and in a different place than you were before. And if you have that mindset that I'm not the same person that did it the first time, I'm not this, I don't have the same knowledge that I did the first time, you start to get excited about failing forward versus being scared of failing forward, you know, but there's, there's a lot of people that are so stuck in their fear, so stuck in what happened last time that they never ever get to that point where it is they realize that there's forward progress and, and failure. There's two parts to that though. Uh, one is <clears throat> the accomplishment of what you set out to get to finally, you know, hitting the target. The other is as you get closer here, closer there, closer here, closer there, it's the journey. So there, yeah. there are people like uh, in, in the book that you mentioned stuff, I'm sure one of the elements was you can embrace each one of those steps that you take. And so that succession taken together of steps is your journey. And there's some enrichment and some encouragement in that. And you can get that by watching other people do the same thing. Absolutely. And not only that, if you think about everything it is that's happened to you up until now has caused you to be where you're at. So in other words, if it hadn't been for me making decisions that I made and extending my career in college to be able to, you know, start my own business and to be able to work in corporate world for five years to then go work full time and to be able to go overseas, come back to meet my wife, to be able to look for a church, to find the church, to become a Stephen minister, to go and meet you as a Stephen leader training any of those things that I could have considered to be off path of what it is that I wanted, if those things hadn't happened, it wouldn't have led us to where it is that we're at today. So what I do is I focus on the blessings of what I have today and realize none of that could have happened if it is I didn't have the things that at the time I would have deemed as a failure or something that went wrong. And uh, I'm, I feel very excited and blessed about life now. And uh, any little one little decision, you know, could have made it where it is that I don't have the blessings I have today. That's, yeah, that's true. In, uh, in the course that, that I'm pursuing, taking God's talent and continuing on with my writing, some feedback I got recently was that it's obvious that you are using all the writing experience you've ever done to apply to this project, and it shows. Which means that all the dinky little, you know, make work projects I had, the little, I'd sell an article for $25 you know, I'd, I'd work on this short story and do that. And so that now that when I sit down and work on this, I can draw upon a wealth of experience of my own. And when people talk about their experience and you know, the way that they write and stuff, I can identify with it because, you know, I beat my head up against the wall. That's why it drives me nuts whenever some of the younger generation don't feel like they need to be able to do the grunt work. They're looking for that shortcut to be able to get to the top, not realizing that all of the grunt work that you have to do is building not only your character, but your experience that you'll need later on. Now being 25 years inside of the print marketing, graphic design, web design industry allows me to be able to come in as a consultant and give them solid advice about what to do and not to do and charge way more than what it is that I could have charged even just for doing a web design and a web development contract or doing a print marketing uh, contract for somebody. Now I can come in and just give my advice based on all the experiences all the things that, that I've been able to see companies do, but also help companies do. But that is all a, a built up of that 25 years of experience that allows me to be able to do that. And, and you take any of those different situations away, again, that I would have seen as bad situations and I wouldn't have been able to do what I do now. I was having a coffee with a, a friend of mine, oh, two, three weeks ago. And he had said something I hadn't heard in a long time. 
uh, used to hear it when I was younger, and it's this. Why should you beat your head against a brick wall? Answer, because it feels so good when you stop. <laughs> you know that I like that. I never heard that one before. <laughs> so, so he, he, so he was saying that he had been, fi- you know, figuratively beating his head up against the wall. He finally stopped doing what he was doing, which was the wrong thing, getting him nowhere. But he had the presence of mind to say, "What was that all about?" Yep. And and what should I learn from having done that? Like, oh. Shouldn't be getting beating my head against that wall. I should be walking through that gate that that's, door. <laughs> that's attached to that wall. And so he did, and he and he made some progress with his issue. So I, I just I think about that as kind of like, yeah, that you know it feels so good when you stop doing something that hurts. <laughs> so so there's another big fear that comes into when you talk about fear of failure, and this is one that a lot of people don't realize that they have either. And it took me a while to be able to. Well, actually took a speaker pointing it out and hearing a speaker talk about it, but there's a fear of money. Uh, So in other words, if it is that, especially this is for people who it is that have grown up without a lot of money, and maybe it is that their parents put this subconscious thing about people with money in their head. Like the rich people are always snobby or people that drive a certain car are always jerks. Or, you know, people that are in management that are making more money always want to make something off of you. And you hear this enough and it goes into your subconscious. So you have this thought as if I make too much money, I might become that type of person. You're associating something that has is neutral, which is money, right? You even have that whole misunderstanding of the statement that money is the root of all evil. Like, you know, we've heard this a million times and that's not really what it is. It's the love of money is the yeah. root of all evil, right? Is the pursuit of money. That's the pursuit of money and the unhealthy pursuit of money. That's the root of all evil. But, you know, in your mind, you associate money with evil. Therefore, you, uh, there goes that self-sabotage again when you start getting to that success because your fear of money or your fear of being wealthy or your fear of having too much money. And this is all subconscious that you sabotage yourself right before it is that you get there because you don't want to be a ch- perceived as that rich person. But here's the beautiful thing and that that kind of breaks that barrier. If you look at some of the people who it is that have had the most positive influence is because it is that they were able to get to a position of success and then reach back and make changes with the wealth that they have. If you look at how much like Bill Gates is a huge philanthropist, huge, and he's made some huge, huge uh, strides and donations when it comes to uh, charter schools that have access to people who it is that have lower income and scholarships. I mean, if you just look up some of the stuff that him and his wife have done on the philanthropy side, and they don't do a lot of advertising about it, but they do, they pour a lot of their uh, wealth into helping a lot of different people, right? So it's not necessarily the money, it's what it is that you do with the money. And I've always heard that money will just amplify who it is that you are at your core. So if you're an inherently bad person and you get money, you're going to do inherently bad things with it. But if you're an inherently good person and you have money and you keep that balance in check, then you have the ability to do a lot of good things with the money it is that you make. And I believe that you're continuously blessed whenever it is that you're doing the right thing and God puts the right people in situations in your life for you to be able to do the right things with that money. But you have to get this whole perception of money that you have straight so that way it is that you don't self-sabotage yourself when you get in a position where it is that you have the opportunity to be able to make a lot of money. Right. There's um, there's there's two kinds of things. When uh, at the schools I went to, there were people there 
whose families were extremely well off. And it was interesting to see the sons and daughters of those people who had everything handed to them, how willing or unwilling they were to do the work as opposed to have something else handed to them. My father not only insisted that I was on the debate team, but he also insisted that I never, ever, ever join a fraternity. Because <laughs> when, he, when he was in college, there was the depression. So the only people who were in the fraternities were families of very wealth, basically trust fund babies. And they, they flaunted it back then. Oh, you're a poor working person. I've got money type of thing. So there was kind of the stigma, like you were talking about, you know, those people are, are different. But then I, at the same time, unconsciously watched my father work and work and work and work to achieve the status that he wanted yeah. to, because he said, you know, I will be like you one day, but I will earn it, not be handed it. And uh, so that's where I get my type A personality from is, is from watching him work, basically work himself to death. You know, speaking of which, I had a, a friend that I knew all, you know, throughout college or whatever else. And he was, he actually came from a lot of money, but he was so determined to be able to make his own and to be able to not live underneath the shadow of his parents who had a lot of money that you would never know that he had money because he wouldn't accept anything from them. So like you said, there's two different types of people. There's ones that are entitled and feel like they don't have to work because they have everything given to them. And then you have those people that come from money that don't want anything to do with that. They want to make their own and they don't want to live underneath the shadow of their parents who have a lot of money. So when we finally went to, it was funny because we went to Houston and we finally went to his house. He always would want to go to everybody else's house and everything else like that. And finally like, dude, man, you live the closest to where it is that we're going. We're staying at your house this time. And we pull up and he lives in this like gated community, huge mansion, like extra, everybody had like their own room. And we're like, you had this this whole time <laughs> that we're like living in, in slumming and everything else. And you had the ability for us to every time we came to Houston to stay here versus there. And he's like, as soon as people see this, as soon as people see where it is that I came from and everything else, they judge me and they start thinking of me in a different way, either in a good way or a bad way, in a, in a bad way where they're starting to judge me and say, well, he just comes from money or it's because your parents are rich. And there's this whole uh, thing that he's had to live with because you have money X, Y, Z, there's certain expectations, but also on the bad way, well, you got the money. So why don't you just pay or you have the money. So why don't you just, you know what I mean? So he said he's had to live underneath this umbrella. He sees it as a burden of his parents being rich his whole entire life. And the people without money are like, give me that burden. <laughs> like, let me have that, that ability to, to, to carry that, for you because we've lived the opposite side people judging us because we didn't have money because we had to share clothes because it is that we were poor so isn't it crazy how perception is reality from different sides of of the situation yeah right do you know who uh perry como is no he's a singer from back in the 40s and 50s um he was very successful uh and so he made money but he insisted that his kids all work they all had jobs from when they were very young, even though he could have given them fabulous allowance. He maybe did, but he insisted that they work as well because he wanted them to have to, to work for things just like he worked to achieve his career. I think it's establishing a little bit of responsibility and, and values in life. So much respect for him 
for being able to do that. Go ahead. Yeah, the the one element though that uh, ties into what what you were saying is that you know if it's if it's coming from a poor background and uh, getting over the uh, stigma of money and and working for it, the similar ingredient in all the things we've been talking about is doing something. Doing something. Getting off the couch, rolling up your sleeves, coming up with a plan, go for it, correct as you know, as you run into the weeds, say, okay, I'm gonna go this way now. I'm gonna go there. But you're doing something. You're not sitting and wallowing in uh despair because poor pitiful me, the world's against me. Taking that to the next level, not only are you doing something, then you're stopping after a certain amount of time period. I like 90 days. And then you're evaluating what it is that went right, what it is that went wrong. You're making that small adjustment. So that way it is that you're always growing from what it is that you're doing. If you hit a brick wall, if you hit that failure, then you're saying, okay, what got me to the situation? How can I avoid it next time? Or if I have to keep on going through this, how can I do it a little bit better next time? And at some point you'll hit that tipping point where it is that you've learned enough and now it's time for the success to be able to keep on rolling in. But most people quit before it is that they get to that, uh, that point. And that comes from that fear of failure. I failed too many times. I failed, you know, too much. I failed too publicly, uh, which is why it is that people quit, which kind of leads us to the last thing that I think goes into that feel of fa- fear of failure. And this is what a lot of people have to deal with. And I think it's going to be, Come even more of an issue with this younger generation with social media and everything being so visible and that's fear of what other people think right and so this is this is a deep one this one is almost you have to go get help <laughs> you know to be able to do it because it starts with uh, your parents right your parents and your upbringing and whoever it is that raised you and maybe it is that they were really strong on their opinions on what it is that you should do so we start with this whole initial trying to uh, impress and trying to to get the approval of our parents or whoever it is that raised us, and that's where it starts at. Now, this can be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Like I grew up in a household where it was that uh, we were very conscious of what other people thought. We did not leave the house without ironing our clothes because you know we wanted to make sure that we were presentable as my parents' kids, right? You know what I mean. So it was very much you do not embarrass the parents in public. We were very well-behaved kids and everybody always talked about how well-behaved we were. And that was because we were taught, you do not embarrass me in public. You do not do things that's going to embarrass me at church or wherever it is that we're at. So there's this whole perception of what other people think that was built into me as it is that I was younger, which was great. That was a great guiding line. So my parents are awesome and they did a great job at, at bringing us up. But at the same time, that fear of what other people think, now all of a sudden you're constantly checking yourself versus what people are uh, thinking about you, which can also help to uh, stop you from making certain decisions or stop you from doing certain things because you're scared of what that response is going to be. Talk about uh, doing things to please your parents or, or whatever. My father, very clearly, he was older when I was born. I was the last of his, of his kids. He was 40 when I was born. Your age? Can you imagine having uh, an infant at uh, your age? No, 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 I don't want to imagine that. (laughs) So by by the time I got to be, you know, um, in middle school and and that kind of thing, he had uh, established himself pretty well in his in his practice, and he had success and that kind of thing. And so he knew what it took to get to where he was. So he was adamant that I learn 
And not only that, but I start out at a much earlier age doing it than when he did. So he he would say, you know, I want you to join the Cub Scouts. And I want you to become an Eagle Scout because that's, that's a, a measure of success. I want you to be on the baseball team, but I want you to be the best hitter. And, you know, we'll get you some coaching, you know, and all this. So he, he set uh, bars for me to uh, accomplish. He just said, you know, I expect you to be the best in your endeavor, not the best that I could be, but better than everybody else, which was not always possible, but didn't stop him from insisting. So you're right. Our, our parents have, uh, have, a, uh, uh, have a great influence on that. But the byproduct of that, to address your point, is that because I was concentrating on what he was expecting of me, and therefore, you know, basically I translate that into adults, which meant the teachers. It's one of the reasons why I was a good student was, you know, I knew that I could, A, I could do it, and I knew the teachers would like a, a good student as opposed to a cut up and a, and a jerk and all that kind of stuff. So it really, it really didn't matter what the other kids thought. I was working my way to what the adults in the room were doing. And so to that extent, you know, I found that it was very easy that, you know, the, you know, the comings and goings and the whims of who's popular, this click, that click, it's kind of like, you know, what a waste of time. <laughs> it's kind of like, no, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't try to impress that. Try to impress the people who can do something in your life. You, you're, you're being, as I discovered later, you're being very inefficient about this. You should be trying to work toward them, not toward us. It's funny because you brought up a couple of different points. A, you brought up something that we do as parents all the time, which is project what it is that we want, our hopes and dreams, maybe something that we didn't accomplish on our kids. And they take that on as theirs. And then they get older in life and they realize that was in the direction I wanted to go or meant to go. But I've been trying to live up to this bar, live up to the standard that my parents have set for me. I have a friend who it is that he was an athlete. His brother was an athlete. All his family, his dad was an athlete, his grandpa was an athlete. So he's determined that his son is going to be an athlete. Whether he wants to or not, he's going to force him to be an athlete. I got him private coaches, like kind of like what you said. I'm doing all these different things because you're going to be a superstar athlete because it's in the blood. You know, we all did athlete. We all played a fraternity. You're going to be able to do this as well. And it's obvious, obvious to me from the outside in that this kid does not was not interested in athletics at all. He's doing it because he wants to impress dad. And dad says that he should be, and he has the size and everything, but the kid's not interested in athletics at all. And he almost, you know, I was talking to his dad and his dad was almost frustrated and in tears because his son is not, he's, he was like, we're trying all these different sports. we got to find the sport that, that, that he likes. I just got to find the sport that he likes. To which I said, what if he's not into sports? Oh, man, get out of here with that. It's not even a possibility in his mind that his kid might be an artist, a musician, or a painter, or anything else like that, because sports is what the family does. You see what I mean? So often as parents, and it's no fault of ours, it's just how we're wired, we project what we want or what we think our kids should do or what we think is best for the kid. Don't do that profession because that profession doesn't make a lot of money. Be a doctor instead. Don't be a doctor, be an entrepreneur because you can never have your own because all of our family's entrepreneurs, you're going to be an entrepreneur too. Well, maybe they're employee mentality and they want to go get a job. We still need people who need to be able to work on both sides. The projection that goes back to the fear of what other people think you're letting your life by what it is that your parents think, what it is that you're expected to be able to do, what it is that the authorities think. And then when you break this, this and you start doing stuff because it's A, what it is that you want to do, 
But B, also what it is that the spirit has allowed you to be able to do. You start getting signs to what your overall, you know, purpose in life is to be able to accomplish or the gifts and the skills that you have that are outside of what you thought you need to be able to do. It's a pretty amazing thing. Right. I can remember my father made arrangements for me to go uh, deer hunting with one of his clients and uh, recurringly and to go dove hunting with one of uh, the other veterinarians in his practice. Be myself, I was not interested. I, you know, killing Bambi? Are you kidding? I'd rather feed the deer than shoot the deer, but I had to go out and shoot a deer, kind of thing. And with that and some of the other things, I finally figured out I'm doing all the things that he did not get to do because of the depression and his family not having the means to allow him to do this stuff. So I was living his life, you know, as a as a kid growing up, up to a point to finally said, you know. Mm, enough of this, I, I'd rather go this way. Yeah. At, at the same time, when I got involved in the military school, it was an environment that I did very well in uh, and achieved certain things. And he said to me one time, uh, shortly before he died, he said, your success at that school is the first thing that I, my father, that I had nothing to do with. That was all you. And so that was the point where I walked my own path with my own um, set of values and desires. And he recognized that I was my own person, that he had instilled me with a lot of things. I was part of his gene pool. I had a lot of his set of values, but I was not him. Yeah. It's amazing whenever you hit that point of, of realizing that you got to be able to do what it is that you need to be able to do. And, and that leads to our last uh, portion of fear of failure, which is the fear of disappointment, right? Uh, you know, I've known people that have never been back home or haven't been back home in a long time because their life is different than what it is that their parents, their friends, uh, their old peers, their old siblings thought that it should be. And so that fear of disappointing people is another thing that, that tends to hold people back or it even tends to make people not make a decision. You have your dream job lined up you have your, your dream position. It's really passionate about what you do, want to do, but you don't want to take it on because you don't want to disappoint the people at your old job. Maybe you don't want to disappoint the, your parents. Maybe it is that you just don't want to disappoint uh, people in your life that want things to stay the same. So that fear of disappointment kind of times it into the fear of what other people think. It ties into the fear of success. It ties into the fear of money. But that fear of disappointment will hold you in place and cause you to do just enough to be able to stay exactly where it is that you want to. You talk about the fear of disappointing your father until you get to that point where you finally say, I need to be able to do what it is that I want to be able to do, right? Right. So it's one of those things that look at the other part of it. You also have to focus on, as we as Christian men do, is that to focus on what it is that God is leading me to do, because that's important not what this person thinks or that person thinks or my father thinks exactly, you know, type of thing. But, you know, if that conflicts with the path that God has set out, then I'm going to follow God's path. And realizing that God is love and that he always loves you. There is no, in his mind, he's always going to love you no matter what. It's not based on what it is that you're doing or what it is that you do for him to be able to love you. Doesn't believe that he's not going to frown on some of the stuff that you do that's outside of uh, the realm of what's good and what's bad, but it just means that 
love is not conditional based on what it is that you do. God's love, at least, is not conditional based on what it is that you do. He loves you for who it is that you are. And that, just having comfort inside of that too, will also help you to be able to get over that fear of success, fear of money, fear of what others think, and fear of disappointment. Because you know that there's one person that will never take their love away from you, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Sure. In in terms of organizational stuff, you, you know that when you are concerned about what other people think, you have to realize that they're trying to make you to be like them so that you'll become part of that herd. In big corporate organizations, in the military, and uh, in big business and that kind of thing, there is very much of a herd mentality. And you, you either better be, you know, part of that mentality or you just kind of get ostracized and eventually eked out or leveled out kind of thing. And you can fight against it, probably not ultimately successfully unless you just have tremendous desire and tremendous wherewithal and some lucky breaks. But the the thing that I hearken about in the times when I decide that I'm going to maintain my set of values, regardless of what the institution or this group or, or whatever thinks I'm going to do this because I believe in my heart and I've prayed on it. And this is what I sh- should be doing is the 23rd Psalm where it says, you know, though I walk through the shadow of death, I'll, Valley of the shadow of death. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll fear no evil because thou art with me. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, Hey, you know, it, it, the, the native Americans had this, had this thing and I have a, a, a painting poster in, in my office, uh, where the Indians say, today is a good day to die. You know, it's kind of like, I know I'm going to fight. I know that I may die, but I am willing to go to that fight because it is the right fight to pick. Now, you have to be careful about picking really big fights that are fatal, but in the small stuff, you don't have to compromise. You have to be yourself, given that yourself is in line with God's wishes. You know, that herd mentality is not just a corporate world. It could be in groups of friends. It could be just in individuals because here's the second part of that. People don't like it whenever you get better and point out that maybe it is that they need to improve in those same areas. In other words, you improving and leaving them behind, they want to be able to stay in that same place with you. I'll give you an example. As a health coach, we often have uh, husbands and wives that sabotage the success of their spouses, not even intentionally because they like the old person and like the way things were. So now all of a sudden they start feeling better, having more energy. They start losing weight. Maybe some of those different health issues that they had went away. That's the person that they've been with. That's the person that they know this new person that's emerging that's better than where they're at may point out the fact that maybe they need to lose some weight or maybe they need to have more positive outlook on life. Maybe they need to do some personal development. And again, that fear of success, they say, well, it's easier for me to be able to sabotage their success and bring them back to where I'm at than it is for me to actually get up off my butt and do something, right? So they all of a sudden you have this sabotage that goes on, not self-sabotage, but unintentional sabotage. And it can even be a loving thing. Like I love them so much that I'm going to go out and I'll take in the aspects of love that I'm going to buy you this pizza. I was thinking about you. So I bought you this big thing of popcorn. I was thinking about you. So I bought you this pizza. I saw this chocolate chip cookie and I know you love chocolate chips. So I just bought this for you because I love you so much. This box of chocolates, knowing that that's a trigger for that person that may get them off track. So they do it under the auspices of, I love them so much. And this is how I've always shown my love to you is being able through 
food or being able for us to do these things together. But let's go out to eat. We can have this big dinner at this fancy restaurant. You know, I ordered this, this, I went ahead and reserved spots at this restaurant that, that I know you've been always wanted to eat at, even though I know it's way off your nutrition plan and you're doing really well and your weigh-ins on Monday. I'm going to, I'm going to do on Saturday, Sunday night, I'm going to go ahead and book this, this restaurant that you've always wanted to go to. And now that person's like, well, I can't disappoint them. I mean, they spend a lot of money and time and whatever else. And then that starts to spin uh, to be able to get them off track. So sometimes yeah. that's it too. Yeah. So we talked about a couple different things here. We talked about fear of success. Uh, we talked about fear of money. We talked about fear about what other people think, fear of disappointment. Uh, the key thing is we want to hear from you guys. I mean, this is we do this podcast to be able to have conversations with just two average everyday guys having conversations about topics that that most guys don't talk about in a regular form. So we want to hear back from you. And you don't have to be a guy to give us feedback, right? Maybe it is that you have a, a guy in your life. So, you know, we got our social media page, The Techie and the Cowboy, on Facebook. We're Techie and the Cowboy on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. But, uh, you know, comment when we post this episode, comment back and let us know your experiences, what it is that you think, your opinions, what has worked for you. We love hearing this kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons why it is that we do this. Any final comments before we close this thing out? I would say that we have to address fear to figure out why is it that I'm afraid to do X. And when you honestly answer that question, you'll find out. It's no big deal. Right. And you also find out the source of what it is that uh, is causing you not to be able to want to positively change. And then once you have that awareness of that, I think that's a big step towards the right direction. Right. So make sure you hit subscribe, guys. So that way you can hear every episode. But for now, I'm Alistair Hunt, a.k.a. The Techie. And I'm T.W. Lawrence, a.k.a. The Cowboy. And we're out of here, so let's kick that country outro music. That's it for this episode. Join us again next time for The Techie and the Cowboy. Hit us up on our website, thetechieandthecowboy.com. Let us know what y'all think.